You may be seated. As you're being seated, would you please turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Titus, letter that Paul wrote to uh, an up-and-coming pastor. We're going to look at Titus chapter 2. And what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up the series that I've been making up as I've been going in anticipation of starting Proverbs next week. So I'm going to start Proverbs next week. So if you want to prepare for that, you can read kind of the first chapter of Proverbs. We're kind of in a series looking at faith and kind of following the, the, the path of faith. So starting with what is faith? It's kind of the first sermon. Then one of the enemies of faith, namely self-righteousness, the parable of the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector. Then thinking about what is assurance of faith? What does it mean to have assurance of faith? Then last week, looking at James 2:14 to 26 and wondering about the relationship between faith and works. And how I want to wrap it up this week is in light of James' admonition and his encouragement to have a true living and fruitful faith, I want to look at one aspect of the fruit that faith bears in the life of a Christian. So let me start by reading Titus 2, verses 7 to 14, as we begin to kind of unpack this New Testament theme of this fruit of faith. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are, be, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we would ask this morning that your word would come in power and authority, that it would come in clarity and conviction, that your word would be an instrument of helping us be what we are in Christ. That as we stand in Christ righteous, Lord, help us to be more righteous in practice. As we stand in him, covered in his goodness, may that transform us to be good in practice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question that I want to pose in this sermon, seek to answer, is how should Christians view good works? How should you think about and pursue the practice of good works? Why I ask that is because it seems that good works have a bit of a public relations problem. And what I mean by that is that in our circles, Protestant reform circles, good works often most of the time get bad press because you know, we, we kind of view them in, in a negative light. And here's what I mean. We know that there are people out there who believe that they can do enough good to be good enough to think that they've earned their way into heaven. And we know that that's not good enough is never good enough. And we don't want to have that view, so we protect against it. We also know that a person's doing of good works can lead to kind of puffing them up with spiritual pride 
and they can kind of get a sense of spiritual congratulations and look at how good I'm doing. And so we rightly want to protect against spiritual pride. We also know that an imbalanced focus on good works can sometimes open the door to various forms of legalism. We know that legalism is not good, so we want to protect against various dangers of legalism. We've also read and heard Isaiah 64, 6, which says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. And we, none of us, wants to be in the filthy rags production business. So we're warned by that text. And we've probably seen historical examples of denominations, maybe even been part of them in the past, where doing good deeds actually superseded declaring the good news. And not only superseded declaring the good news, but eventually led to the distortion and denial of the good news. And so in our efforts to want to protect the integrity of the good news and be faithful to it, we are leery of that. So good works often get bad press and are, bare and are viewed in a negative light. And so with all those things I mentioned, it's, it's subtle and easy for us to almost view them with kind of an aversion, to see them as only negative things. And yet, given all these issues and errors and potential problems, it's important here that we remember our Latin logic lessons. Okay, this is, this is very key. Our Latin logic lessons taught us this, abusus non tolit usum. Can I get an amen? Okay. Amen. Roughly translated in English, it means don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We often see something and the abuse of it, the misuse of it, or the ways it can go negative and wrong. And then so we reject it wholesale altogether. And we throw the baby out with the bathwater. So this sermon is a public relations campaign to rescue the baby of good works by helping us see a proper definition of what good works are, gaining a proper perspective on how God views the good works of his genuine children. What are the purpose that God works has designed? What are are the purposes for which God has designed good works? And what are some principles that the scriptures give us for practicing good works that honor the Lord? So what's motivating me to preach this is partly the challenge of what we saw in James 2, 14 to 26, right? True faith is living and active and fruitful. You know, James' challenge was, you know, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So I thought it would be helpful. Let's look at this aspect this one aspect of the fruitfulness of faith, namely good works. And another motivator is that this is no minor theme in the New Testament. There are many admonitions, many encouragements that the scriptures give on this point. Consider this small sampling. Ephesians 2.10, after that great discussion of being brought from death to life, saved by grace through faith, here's what Paul says, Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? four good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then Titus 2.7, which I read, the admonition, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Then Titus 2.14, at the end of our reading, Jesus declares that part of his purpose of redemption was to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous, zealous for good works. And then Titus 3.8, how he ends his charge to Titus by saying, I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So you just take a little sampling. 
And what do we have for the Christian life? A calling to walk in good works, a calling to model good works, a call to be zealous for good works, and a call to devote ourselves to good works. So my desire is that the Holy Spirit would take those texts and not only write them on our hearts, but then replicate them in our lives as people of God. So we need to start in the place that all subjects must necessarily start, and that's with a definition. We need to define our terms. How do we define good works? And definitions are important because there are many thoughts and ideas and examples and models that people throw out there, and we need to be able to separate the wheat from the chaff, the fool's gold from the gold. Because the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they had their very own detailed definition and description of what constituted a good work. Very detailed, very descriptive. Just You can read hundreds of pages that they had on what a good work looks like on the Sabbath and what it doesn't look like. And Jesus strongly disagreed with their definition. He said, these people worship me in vain. Why? For they teach man-made ideas as if they were commandments of God. So definitions are important because we don't want to fall prey to that error. And apparently, definitions are important because oftentimes people don't get the memo. Many in the medieval church did not read this memo from Matthew 15 that Jesus gave because they went on and did the same sort of thing. They created rituals. They created rules. They created all sorts of regulations of what constituted a good work in their minds. And they laid those burdens on the people that were under their charge. And the Reformation was kind of a, a rediscovery of what really constitutes a good work. What's God's law and what is just man-made ideas? And now, in our own day, the definition of good works requires some clarity because we are seeing some major redefining of important terms. I'm thinking of terms like tolerance and love and how they've been redefined in our day. Because there, there seems to be this prevailing notion today that the best good work you can do towards another person, to, to love your neighbor, is affirm them in whatever they feel and support them in whatever they do. That is the best good work you can do. But is that what the Lord says? So what is good works according to the Bible? So here's the definition. I'm going to give it to you and then break it down. A good work is any action which is grounded in God's word, motivated by God's grace, and aimed at God's glory and the benefit of others. So good work is first and foremost some, an action that is actually grounded in God's word because he is the ultimate standard of good. He is goodness himself. So think of Micah 6.8, very famous text in the Old Testament. It starts with this, he has shown you. Very critical. The Lord has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So good works are not determined by what the culture says at that moment, at that time, medieval or modern, and good works are not subjectively determined. Good works are divinely revealed by what God has said in his word because he is the standard of goodness. So they must conform either explicitly or implicitly with the word of God. Secondly, a good work is motivated by God's grace. Motive is as critical as action when it comes to the Christian life. Motive is as critical as action. Paul says, Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, for this is your spiritual act of worship. 
Paul is saying, our motive as Christians is important as the commands I'm about to give you. So in view of God's mercies, listen to what I'm about to say in Romans 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. Or Ephesians 5.1, he says it like this. Therefore, be imitators of God. God does good, you do good. But why? As beloved children. The motive is as critical as the action. But not just action and motive, but intent as well. A good work is aimed at God's glory and the benefit of others. Jesus exposed that even though externally the Pharisees did many things that one would constitute as a good work, they're very charitable, they were very religiously zealous, they seemed to take obedience very seriously, and yet their good deeds done externally were not done in terms of their proper intent and aim internally. Because everything they did was in one sense saying to the crowds, look at me, look at me, be impressed with me. Aren't I wonderful at this religious performance? They were the greatest religious showmans. They were the original spiritual P.T. Barnums of their day and how they performed. But for the Christian, the heartbeat of our aim and intent is Psalm 115.1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory in what we do. And the heartbeat of the Christian is also Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourself. So as we ground in God's word, motivated by God's grace and aimed at God's glory and the benefit of others. That's how we define what a good work is. That's what makes a good work good. Now that we have a definition, how are we to understand God's perspective on our good works. And why I think this is important is because I'm sure for some of us, this is going to require some kind of biblical recalibration because we have a distorted perspective on God's perspective of our good works. And here's a question that really, when I first heard it, it kind of arrested my attention and helped me start rethinking how God views the good works of his genuine children who genuinely, sincerely, even imperfectly and impartially seek to obey him and honor him. Here's the question. When you think about your good works in relation to God, what expression do you picture God having on his face as he views your attempts to do good works? May I say that again? When you think about your good works in relation to God, what expression do you picture God having on his face as he views your good works and your attempts to do good works? And here's why I ask that question. Because perhaps you think or feel as if he looks disgusted because you've misapplied Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag. And many have taken this verse to be God's universal perspective on any and every person attempting to do anything in service to the Lord. And this is where context is key. Okay? Isaiah is not talking about the genuine, sincere, even if imperfect obedience of a genuine believer. He is talking about those who've been honoring God with their lips, but their hearts are far from them. He is talking about the religious hypocrite who goes through the motions, who goes through a checklist, thinking that by doing the checklist, they have now achieved God's blessing and all things will be well for them because they've gone through the motions. That's what Isaiah is viewing and describing. That the Israelites, by and large, had gone after other gods, abandoned the Lord, and yet they were still doing the sacrifices. They were still kind of checking the Sabbath checklist. 
And Isaiah is saying, do you understand that by doing that, when your heart is far from him, this is what you're actually, you're presenting filthy rags before. He's not talking about the genuine and perfect obedience of his sincere children. Or perhaps this question is important because you think God looks at your good works with an expression of disappointment because you have misunderstood Luke 17.10 where Jesus in a parable says to his disciples, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now I've heard many people use this to say that in one sense, we, we should never view our good works as if God is ever pleased with them, delights in them, because it says we're unworthy servants and we, we can never do enough. You have to understand what Jesus was teaching in that parable was not that God is an unappeasable taskmaster who, to modify the words of Jane Austen, only looks upon a person to see a blemish. That's not how this is. What Jesus was contending against was the Pharisees' foolishness regarding their view of the merit of their good works. Because here's what happened. The Pharisees had this silly notion that a creature could do enough religious works to put the creator in his back pocket, as it were to put the creator in his debt. And that, we must say, is utter foolishness. You could sooner use your own two legs to jump across the Grand Canyon than you could do enough works to put God in your debt. As Paul says in Romans 11, who has ever given a gift to the Lord that he might be repaid? Who has ever been his counselor? He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That's what Jesus is contending against. He's contending against this perspective of merit, not the genuine, sincere obedience of his children. So not disgusted, not disappointed. That's not the proper perspective. How does God view our good works? What expression should you see on his face? The biblical picture is that of a father who delights in and smiles upon the loving expressions of his children who are seeking to genuinely serve him. The father looks upon your good works with delight, bursting with joy and smiling on his face because he loves the genuine, sincere, yes, imperfect, yes, impartial, but genuine obedience of his dearly loved children. Listen to Hebrews 13, 16. The author of Hebrews, he wants to motivate his congregation to do good, to live out their faith in fruitfulness. Hebrews 13, 16, here's how he motivates it. He says, do not neglect to do good and to share with those in need, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Now, that word pleased is easy to skip over. It's not a small word. It's the same root word that the father uses when he looks on his son at his baptism and says, this is my well-beloved son in whom I am well-pleased. It's that same language that the father uses for his perfect son that he does use for his children. Think about it. There, there are two kinds of obedience offered probably in most of your homes where, where there are kids or when there were kids. So in the, in the Jacobson household, there's, there's two kinds of obedience offered. There is servile obedience, okay? That's one of them, where demands are given, threats are made and repeated frequently and often, and begrudging work is done, okay? That's probably 97.5%. But then there is spontaneous obedience, 2.5% of the time. But oh, it is 100% joy when it happens, right? There's no external motivator, no command has been given, no threat has even been offered. And a child comes and says, Mom, what can I do to help? And it's spontaneous. No one was told to do that. 
It does, not, does that not delight the heart of a parent when there's spontaneous obedience? Or you're walking down the hallway, you're, you're carrying another basket of laundry, and you look in the room, and in an hour you're going to tell your kids to clean the room, but one of them is actually doing it without telling you. And, and they're actually doing it right. They're putting the socks in the sock drawer and the shirts in the shirt, and it's wonderful. The sweetness of that feeling in a parent's heart, the smile it puts upon their face, is a small window into how your Heavenly Father feels when you lovingly, graciously pursue good works in his name, in his honor. He delights in it. God views our good works not as a judge. God views our good works not as a judge who demands perfect conformity to the law because Christ has met that demand already in our place. He has satisfied God the judge by his perfect obedience in our place. So if we are in Christ, God views our good works as a father who loves his children and loves the loving expressions of his children. Now I have two pictures here of, this is, I can't, you, this is the Jacobson family, I can't, I, can't you know, I don't know if you can tell, but these pictures, they're not going to win first prize at any art contest, I guess. I don't think any of you wants to buy them now seeing them. The National Museum of Art is not calling me to ask to put them in their museum. But I love these pictures. They put a smile on my face. Why? Because they were drawn by Lewis and Lucy. And those are my children. And I love them because they are drawn by them for me. That's a bit like what the author of Hebrews means in Hebrews 13 when he says, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. He's not pleased because they come to him perfect without any blemish. He's pleased with them because they are offered in his son who is our perfect righteousness. And even though imperfect and impartial, the genuineness and sincerity of them delights his heart. That is the motivation to do good works. That is what draws us to want to honor the Father. That's what the Pharisees miss and that's what we cannot miss in pursuing good works. So we've got a definition. We've got God's perspective. Now let's consider what are some of God's designs for our deeds? What, what are the purposes for which he uses our good works? Martin Luther famously said, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. Now what Martin Luther meant and what he said in a very witty way was that we should not view our works as if they merit our salvation. We know that Christ is our merit, but we should view our works as an offering of thanksgiving to the Lord who uses them graciously in his kingdom purposes for gospel advancement, for building his church, for spreading the good news, for being salt and light in the world. God does not need our good works in terms of merit, but he uses them because our neighbor needs them, as it were. God could do all things without us, but what a marvel it is that he chooses to work through us, even our feeble attempts at good works. So one of the purposes of good works that God uses them for is that they serve to encourage and motivate fellow believers. So the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 10:24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. How to provoke one another, how to motivate one another to love and good works. The idea there is that when a believer is genuinely pursuing doing good to others, what what often happens as others see that, as others take note of it, it enables them to be more motivated and encouraged to do those same good works. Think about it like this. If, if you're familiar with just running track and field, cross country, just running on your own, when you run by yourself, 
you are more likely to go slower than if you run with another person who can keep a better pace than you. When you run with another person who is, has better stamina, you know, better cardio, they can run faster. When you run with them, you will have a better time than if you ran by yourself. That, that's kind of the idea here. It's that motivating others by faithfully honoring the Lord. So for example, I don't mean to embarrass him, but I got to witness uh, Mark doing Gator Fellowship and serving uh, the football team there at Palm Beach Gardens High School. And being able to see that was so encouraging to see Mark use his gifts. And it motivated me to fan my own gifts into flame and to utilize them for the Lord. That's how good works function. Another purpose of good works is that they serve to adorn the profession of the gospel. So Titus 2.10 is this beautiful word. So that in everything, he says, talking about doing good to the church, he concludes it with this purpose statement. So that in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Good deeds are ornaments for the good news. So think of it like this. Uh, we've done the uh, holiday boat parade at Jennifer Morton's house a number of years. And one year I was, went over there early to help her move a couch, and she just had a tree up there. It was barren, nothing on it yet. And I thought, it's kind of a big, barren tree. But then we went for the boat parade. No, no offense, Jennifer. It gets better. But then we went to the boat parade, and it was the most beautifully decorated tree. If you've, if you've been to the boat parade and seen the Christmas tree in Jennifer Morton's living room, you know that you just give up at that point. You're like, I'm not even decorating my trees. There's no point. This is the tree of all trees. It is ornamented, decorated in such beauty that you cannot be helped but drawn to it and think this is a lovely Christmas tree. This is what Charlie Brown wished he had when he had a Christmas tree. That's how good deeds function in relation to the good news. Not that they make the good news gooder. You you cannot improve upon the good news. But in the eyes of the watching world, they become ornaments that adorn it and make it more attractive, as it were, in terms of listening to it, considering its claims. So J.C. Ryle gives this helpful challenge on this point. He says this, Our lives will always be doing either good or harm to those who see them. They are a silent sermon which all can read. I believe that far more is done for Christ's kingdom by the good works of believers than we are fully aware of. There is a reality about such living which makes people feel and stirs them to think and consider. Our good works can carry weight and influence with it, which nothing else can give. It makes the gospel beautiful in the eyes of others and draws people to consider it like a lighthouse seen from a far distance. You may talk about the doctrines of the gospel, and few might listen, still fewer might understand, but your life is an argument that none can escape. They may not grasp justification by faith, but they can understand love and charity and generosity. Now that's not all we wanna say about good works, but I think it is a very important thing to say about good works and their function in our life. They adorn the doctrine of the gospel. Well, finally, in Peter's letter to the church, he is intent on showing us that one of the purposes of good works is to discredit, even silence the accusations that might be leveled against the church by an unbelieving and hostile world. So it's no surprise that there are times when uh, there are accusations thrown out about Christianity. There, there are certain... Um, cultural currents that are trying to work against Christianity very intently. This is nothing new. In fact, it was much harder in Peter's day than our day. First Peter 2.12, he says this, Conduct yourselves with such honor among the Gentiles that though they slander you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Or First Peter 2.15, For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. First Peter 3.16, 
Keep a clear conscience so that those who slander you may be put to shame by your good behavior in Christ. So the accusation in Peter's day was that Christians, because they were this, this new sect, this kind of offshoot that was hitting the scene, is that they were detrimental to the health of societal order, that they were the ones causing all the problems. Even Nero went so far as to blame them for a fire that he had started himself. And so there was a lot of slander and accusation and ignorance being lobbed at Christians. And Peter is very concerned that if people are going to be offended by Christianity, make sure it's the gospel that offends them, not the conduct of Christians that offends them. There's enough offense in the gospel. We don't need to add to it. In fact, we want to adorn the gospel by doing good. So that's the purpose of some of the designs of our good deeds. Now, what about some principles for practicing good works? So we've defined it. We've got God's perspective on it. We have some purposes of it. How should we think about the practice of them? And this is, this is a difficult one because when, when it comes to opportunities to help, when it comes to needs that you become aware of, when it comes to situations that you even just kind of stumble upon, your mind probably starts churning out a lot of questions, right? What's my responsibility in this scenario? Okay, what's the wisest action to take with this person? Okay, if I take action X, will it help? And if I take action Y, will it hurt? And we're, we're kind of wrestling with the what ifs, the what abouts. Wouldn't it be nice if the Bible gave us a good works decision matrix that you could just engineer and you said, okay, in situation A, you go down here, and then if it's B, you go up here. Unfortunately, I did not find one in any appendix in any Bible that I own. There, there is not one. Instead, what the Bible does is it gives us principles and it gives us as Christians, the spirit of wisdom to grow a wise mind so that we can take the principles by God's spirit and seek to apply them in wise ways. Seek to know the right way in the right circumstance to apply the right principle. And so I'm going to give you some principles and think of these principles like the lane assist navigation system in some of your newer vehicles. Okay, If, if you have a newer vehicle, the lane assist navigation system can be wonderful because it, it helps you stay in the lane. It helps you kind of regulate your speed properly. It helps you kind of stay far enough away from a car so you don't get an accident. What it doesn't do is it does not turn your car into a self-driving car. You still have to drive the car. In fact, on the one that's in our van, if you let go of the steering wheel for more than 10 seconds, it starts beeping at you and threatens to, to shut off. And so you have to put your hands back on it. The principles aren't meant to be kind of self-driving good works. It's meant to be assistance so that we can better and more wisely practice them. And so here's what they are. Here's, here's a couple of them. The first is the principle of proximity. Here's what it, how to state it. The principle of proximity teaches that we are most responsible to do good to those closest to us. The Bible states the principle of proximity is that we are most responsible to do good to those closest to us. So in general, think of it like a target, a bullseye, with concentric circles expanding outward. In the center is your family, okay? 1 Timothy 5.8, Peter states like this, very strongly. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially members of his own household, they have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. Paul's point is, love your neighbor. And guess what? Your closest neighbor is the people in your house, the people in your immediate natural family. That's who you're called to do good to first and foremost. But then in the next circle, expanding out from there, is members of your local church family. So just as we should prioritize doing good to our natural family, we should prioritize doing good to our spiritual family. So 
For example, in Acts 2, when, when the churches gather, when they come together in fellowship, one of the first things they do for one another is that they share with what God has blessed them with to be a blessing to others who are in need in their immediate, local, spiritual church family. Well, then the next circle out from there is members of the universal church. Think about the, the spiritual family spread abroad. So for example, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul comes with a need from a church in Macedonia to the church in Corinth and says, hey, I know this isn't your immediate spiritual family, so I'm not going to give this to you as a command, but if you're able, could you help meet this need of this church over here with the resources that God has blessed you with here? He wants them to care for the spiritual family abroad. And then finally, in the outer circle, the outermost circle, is the need, the general needs of the broader world that you're in connection with. Okay, though they're not part of our natural family or spiritual family, we're reminded that every person is a person no matter how small. So think of you know the Dr. Seuss, every person is a person no matter how small. They're, they are people created in the image of God, worthy of our respect and care and love. And so Paul says in Galatians 6.10, as you have opportunity, do good to all, especially to the household of faith. You, you kind of hear the, the principle of proximity in that statement. So that's principle number one, principle of proximity. Now, lest we use the principle of proximity as an excuse for inaction, the Bible also gives another principle, the principle of urgency or immediacy, okay? Sometimes, here's how we state the principle, sometimes we come across a need that is so obvious, so immediate, and so urgent, and we are in such a position to help that we must act then and there to help. And the best example of this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's not the only point of the parable, but one of the applications of the parable of the Good Samaritan is the principle of urgency and immediacy. The Good Samaritan didn't stop to interview the guy and say, hey, hey what's your proximity to me? Are you, what's your last name? What, you know, are we second cousins, third cousins? Are you part of this Jewish tribe or what? No, the person was injured, the need was obvious, the resources were there, and he acted to help. So the principle of urgency or immediacy which does not allow us to use proximity as an excuse. Third principle is the principle of necessity. This is an important one because this is where a lot of the struggles come for applying wisdom. Principle of necessity. We are most responsible to do good for those who are least able to help themselves. You're most responsible to do good to those who are least able to help themselves. So James makes a big deal of this. What is pure and undefiled religion in the eyes of God your father? It's to visit orphans and widows in their need. Why does he pick that group? He's not showing favoritism. He understands the social order of his day. The, the, the social order of his day was such that if you're an orphan, if you're a widow, your social safety net was gone. There was nothing that you needed someone else from the outside to step in to fill a role of provision because it was gone, parents or husband. And so that was the quintessential category of people where they were least able to help themselves and therefore most, we were most responsible to help them. Now, what exactly does that look like today? That's where wisdom is required. I don't know exactly what that category looks like today, but here's some examples. I was in a church once where the head of a household, he was a provider, he was a breadwinner, he was able-bodied, and then all of a sudden, overnight as it were, he became paralyzed. It was kind of a fluke medical situation. They didn't know how to deal with it. He was paralyzed, and so one of the things the church did was stepped in and helped with some financial provisions, you know, taking special offering to help the family. Uh, I've been in a church situation setting where help was needed, 
not necessarily permanently, but temporarily because uh, the breadwinner of the home had lost their job, just laid off and, and had uh, no recourse at that time to get other employment. And so they stepped in because they weren't able to help themselves at that moment. And I've been in a situation where uh, someone stepped in to help someone because they were living on their own. They didn't have the resources to just go into a place where they could get the assistance you know, professionally they needed, but they did need assistance. So they brought them in to live with them because they were not able to help themselves in that situation and needed assistance. That would be examples of the principle of necessity, most responsible to help those least able to help themselves. Well, now there's one condition with this one. The Bible does give one condition where this principle absolutely must not apply. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, Paul's saying there is if someone is able to provide for themselves, there, there is no physical ailment hindering them, but they're unwilling to do it because they prefer to be lazy instead. The best help that you can offer this person is the right foot of fellowship. Okay? That's the best help, the, kind of the, the kick in the pants. And I remember receiving this kind of help as a college student who came home with uh, no job and 75 cents, 73 cents to be exact, in my bank account. And I was told in very helpful good work terms, if you don't get a job, you're not going back to school. I, I found a job very quickly. I was very able-bodied uh, in, that, in that moment instantaneously. It's one of those ones where we want to help in ways that are helpful, right? And sometimes wisdom dictates what that looks like. Last principle is the principle of the everyday ordinary. So the principle of proximity is closest to us, the principle of urgency, the principle of necessity, and the principle of the everyday ordinary. I saw this wonderful sign, I think it was at Hobby Lobby. They always have these weird signs. It says, everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to do the dishes. Be the change. I think it was meant to hang over your dishwasher or something. And the whole point, I think it's silly, but very good point. Don't, in your desire to do good, don't overlook the opportunities that are right there, right in front of you, no matter how small they are. Where has God placed you right here and right now? Who has he put you in the path of right here and right now? And don't overlook what it means to do good in those areas. So just consider these questions. What roles does God have you in right here and right now? What, what are the roles that you would kind of categorize yourself in? What would it look like to do good works in those roles? What relational spheres has God placed you in the path of? So neighborhood, school, workplace, sports, community, hobbies, you know, you, you name it, the list goes on and on. Community involvement, whatever. What relational spheres has God placed you in right here and right now? And what could it look like to do good works in those relational spheres? And we, we don't have a, a good works program at Sand Harbor. We don't kind of have a sign up for if you want to do good works on Monday and Tuesday. We do have is we have a organic, regulated free market approach to good works, okay? What that means is go out there and do good, all right? And we'll, we'll, we'll support you and we'll help you and we'll enable you however we can, um, but we're not going to do it for you. We're not going to give you a checklist, but we are going to encourage you to do it. And we love the free market of good works, and so go for it. So these principles certainly don't answer all our questions about what it looks like to do good works. They don't give us all the specifics for various situations. What they do do is they help us, when wisely applied and rightly motivated, they help us to put in practice what our Lord calls us to. Let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let's pray to that end.